Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So good morning. I'm glad to be here with you as we continue our series titled Six Acts, the Unfolding Drama of Scripture. And remember, the goal of this series is to help you make sense of the whole canon of Scripture, that is the whole Bible, and see how it unfolds as one unifying story, specifically in six different acts. We are in week three, and if you've missed any of the other sermons, you can go back and catch up online. They're all there. But this week, I have my work cut out for me because we are in Act 3, okay? And Act 3 spans that much of the Bible. So we're going to be here for about two weeks. Hope you brought a snack. But Act 3 is all about Israel and redemption initiated, okay? Act 3 is about the story of Israel, and it spans from Genesis 12 all the way through Malachi. And when we understand Israel, here's the idea. When we understand Israel, we will make much more sense of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. Okay, just keep that in mind. Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. And far too often when we're talking about the gospel and we're talking about Jesus and our faith, we jump from Genesis 3, which is the fall, and we fuddle our way all the way through and then start talking about Jesus coming into the world. And we skip over the vast majority of the Bible. But that's not how the Bible's written, and so it's not helpful for us to understand it in that way. And now, before we jump into this this section, understanding Israel, there are two important things I feel are, well, just very important for us to talk about when me and you and we are diving into the Old Testament, how to understand it, some things we got to be careful of and watch out for. First, okay, so this is all for the Old Testament and New Testament, but specifically Old Testament. First, when we are dealing with ancient documents, we have to learn how to read ancient documents like a historian would read them. For instance, we cannot apply our 21st century ethics worldview and specifically scientific worldview into something that was written up to 4,000 years ago. It just doesn't work. Take, for instance, I cannot, specifically me, right, this is, I'm speaking for Brian right now, I cannot understand the ethics of people who lived in the country just 60 years ago. Maybe not you, but some. Like for the life of me, I cannot figure out why anyone would get upset about ending segregation. For me, I cannot understand why there was a time in this country that women couldn't vote. For the life of me, I can't understand slavery. 
And that was just 150 years ago. See, my worldview's a bit different. And, and let's take segregation, for instance. Some of you who were around then, you understand it a little bit differently. You grew up, you saw the fears, you knew what people were working through, and, and perhaps you didn't support you know, segregation itself, but you understand perhaps why some of the people were worried about it ending. I have no context for that because I didn't live in that. And all of it's so foreign to me. That was just 60 years ago. Now, when we jump into something that was written a couple thousand years ago in a different country, in a completely different time period of this world, we have to understand we're not going to get it all. And applying our ethics and our worldview and our scientific mindset into something that happened that long ago just won't work for us. It's better to read it like a historian would. And what historians do, they don't go back and, and when they're studying history, really judge everybody. They go, okay, well, in light of the fact that this idea was accepted by everybody, it just was, what led to that change? Because history really is the, the study of change. And so you look at something, you go, okay, well, back then all of this was accepted, this whole worldview, this whole idea, well, what led to it change? And you just keep investigating, investigating, investigating. And once you do that, you can go, wow, okay, we found some pretty nifty things. So for instance, you go, let's say 200 years ago, and a lot of the fact that everybody seemed to think it was okay to own people, what led to the change in that worldview? What prompted people to start looking at this differently? And therein lie, you will find something very significant. Go back and, and do the research on your own. Or take, for instance, the Old Testament, I meant the Ten Commandments. When you read those a couple thousand years ago, in light of what everybody else believed in that time period, when you see the Ten Commandments, you're like, wow, these are like progressive. These give freedom to people. It's nothing like anything else that was written back then. And when you read it in that context, it just surprises you of how amazing the Bible and what it teaches and what, how it tells people to behave, how different it is than all other ancient documents. So we can't take our morals and our ethics and apply them for a couple thousand years ago. It won't work, folks. So don't get caught up on some of the stuff. Just work through it and, and hear the whole larger story going on. Secondly, when we get into the Old Testament, we have to be radically careful to understand what we are reading. And we cannot assume that everything was written to us because it wasn't. There are some things we can grab hold of and some things we just can't. Now take, for instance, this verse. This is, uh, you'll, you'll commonly hear uh, and from political-driven pulpits. I'll just say it like that. Second Chronicles says this. Second Chronicles 714. I haven't got the King James for you because that's how you've heard it before. It says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and I will heal, heal their what? Land. I know. And then the sermon goes something along the lines of let's save America. Let's make it great again or some other nonsense. And here's the deal. This is not about America. Nor can we claim those promises written to Israel. This is a specific thing dealing with specific people at the dedication of the temple from Solomon to Israel based on the covenant and how God was working with their people. They could claim this because it's built into their covenant that God would do certain things if they did certain things. But claiming this promise 
as us, Americans, is just as helpful as me claiming that the Messiah is going to come from my line just like King David could. If I claim that there would be a king that would never end coming from my line of people, how helpful would that be? You're not following me? I know you think I'm great. I'm not that great. I'm just letting you know. I can't claim some promises because it's not promised to me. It was promised to David. This was promised to Israel under the old covenant, which we'll get into here in a minute. Now, can we learn some things from this? Sure. We can, learn about, we can learn what it looks like to be humble before the Lord. We can look at what it looks like to pray. We can look at so many great things and learn. But we cannot claim this as a promise for God to heal the people of America because that's not what this is referring to, nor is that what he promises to do. That is nothing more than the prosperity gospel funneled through politics. Now, two things to be a better Bible reader. Number one, especially the Old Testament, right, because you've there's some stuff in here that we're like, wow, I just don't get it. Hey, me neither, but it was written thousands of years ago. I don't expect to understand everything back then. So number one, stop reading ancient documents through 21st century eyes. Try to understand their world. It takes time, but do your best, and the story will come alive at a much deeper level. And number two, we cannot claim promises made to Israel as if they're to us. It won't work because God doesn't promise that. Now, let's jump into Act 3, Redemption Initiated. Like every other act, we got to understand, like an act in a play or an act in a movie or whatever you're looking at, in order to understand Act 3, we got to first understand Act 1 and 2. And remember, this is where we've been. Act 1 is all about God's creative purposes. God created the entire world. He is this great artist who brought everything into existence and gave them purpose and had a plan. God created humans in his image with the purpose of managing the earth on his behalf to reflect his goodness and um, his goodness and his character into the world. So we were created to partner with God to manage this world on his behalf. And we saw that humans were created to share in this special relationship with God and with each other. Pretty amazing thing about humans. Act two, we saw the problem introduced to the world. We saw rebellion in the kingdom. We saw the fall of mankind. Um, humans turning their back on God, bringing sin into the world. And we saw sin was destructive, not only with our relationship with God, but also with our relationship with each other. Sin is the problem that we all deal with. It's the problem that's in our world. And sin is the desire to be autonomous and independent from God. We want to do things our way on our terms. Anybody struggle with that? All of us do. It's called sin. And last week we left off seeing how sin had just affected all of humanity. It got off track from God's original purpose. And now we turn to Genesis 12, where we see God doing something amazing. He initiates relationships with humans on his terms once again and says he's going to do something pretty amazing. And we see the call of this one man seemingly out of nowhere. We're given his genealogy at the end of Genesis 11, and then we see this, the call of a man named, what's his name? Abraham, Abram, right. You've heard of this guy before. Everybody has. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says this. The Lord has said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. 
I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now, I cannot overstate how important these verses are because the rest of the Bible, listen to this, the rest of the Bible is now this coming to play. This, the rest of the drama is showing how God's going to accomplish this. Like these are radically important. God's going to do something through this person, through Abraham. The whole Bible is wrapped around this now. And we see this one man named Abraham. He's told to leave everything he knows, his country, his people, his family. This is not a small ask. By the way, living by faith is never a small ask. He says, I need you to leave everything and I'm going to do something through you. He leads Abraham from a place of comfort. Y'all ever been comfort? Comfortable? You're like, not right now. I don't know what you're about to say. I'm not comfortable at all. All right. He takes him from a place of comfort to a place of discomfort, a step of faith, and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, Abraham. I'm going to do this through you. Like, I'm going to do this. You will be famous and bless others, and all families on this earth will be blessed through you. And the thing about Abraham is, he has how many children? Zero. Yet God promises that all this stuff's going to happen. He's looking at him, you have no kids, but I'm going to make a nation through you. Abraham's like, I'm, I'm not too sure how this is going to happen. But he does what God asks. And it turns out Abraham is just as flawed as every other human on this, play, on this world. He has questions, he has doubts, he doesn't get it right all the time. But God tells him, he says, hey, look up at the sky. He says, you see all those stars? You're going to have that many descendants. And currently he has zero. And he looks up and sees no smog, no pollution in the middle of nowhere in the desert. How many stars do you think he saw? All of them. Right? He saw all the stars. God said, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And then Abraham, 15.6, this is so important. And Abraham, what's that word? Believed in the Lord. And the Lord counted him as what? Righteous because of his faith. This is all the way back in the Old Testament, folks. This has been the storyline, and this has been what God has said the whole time. It's not a New Testament thing. Faith is what God has always required. God requires what God's always wanted was faith, to believe, to trust in him. That's what he asks. And then God establishes a covenant with Abraham. And now this, this covenant is a very important theme throughout the Bible, and it, uh, it's something extremely important to help us understand what area of Old Testament we're working in. Right now, this is the covenant, covenant God made with Abraham, and it's very similar to a contract we've talked about in detail before, but it's a little more binding, and God's the one making it. So God says, here's what I'm going to do for you. Abraham, this is the stuff I'm going to do. This is my plan. Does Abraham deserve it? No idea. But God says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm choosing you. Here's how it's all going to work out. And here's what he asked from Abraham. Check this out. The same thing he asked from you. Here it is. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I'm El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live blameless life. And I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee you to give you countless descendants. He says, I'm going to do this. I want you to serve me faithfully. I want you to walk blamelessly. I want you to live a life devoted for me. The same exact thing he asked from Adam and Eve. 
It's the same story. It's the same thing. God is always asking the same thing. Choose me. Follow me. Worship me. He says, you do this, I'm going to do some amazing things through you. And what's amazing about these promises, they all come true. The nation of Israel, well, we know that was a real nation. That was very powerful. That happened. That's real history. God said he's going to be famous and bless others. Well, check this out. It's a little divided in the world, but this was 4,000 years ago. And over half of the world, 4.5 billion people point to him as the founder of their faith. From Jews to Christians to Muslims. Think he's famous? A guy lived 4,000 years ago, 4.5 billion people say he's a part. I mean, that's fake. I don't know how you get any more famous than that. This man is famous. Even if you don't believe, chances are you've heard of this man. And then all nations will be blessed through him. This is where the religions divide pretty sharp. As Christians, we believe the whole world was blessed because of Jesus Christ who came through his line. And we would argue, of course, the whole world's been blessed. Jesus came through that line. So yes, all of these promises have come true. So this is scene three, act one. We see the call of Abraham. He starts his redemptive plan by making a covenant with him saying, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to redeem people through this covenant. Now, we got to jump a little bit. I can't go detail verse by verse through that many chapters of the Bible. I hope you understand. Scene two, excuse me, act three, scene two, we see Moses show up. And this is the time period we'll call the um, prophetic leaders, the prophets as leaders. You see, fast forward to, to the end of Abraham, and then he had some sons and had sons. He had a son who had sons. We see that all of a sudden, all of Israel, this, this nation, this people group, is now in slavery in Egypt. They ended up being there for 400 years, and this guy Moses was born. I'm sure you've heard his story. If not, you can read it for yourself. But he was raised as an Egyptian, even though he was um, a Jew. He was raised as an Egyptian, ended up becoming a murderer. I mean, we don't ever talk about that in the story of Moses. That's a pretty big deal, by the way. He murdered someone and then fled to the desert for 40 years as a shepherd. He was an outcast and a criminal. And then one day, he saw a burning what? Man, you already knew this story. Y'all are smart. Yeah, he saw a burning bush, but the bush didn't burn. It didn't, wasn't consumed. And so he went to it. Verse 4 of Exodus, chapter 3 says, When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look. Listen, don't you, you got to get caught up in that. I mean, look at the drama. I mean, God already knew it, but look how it's describing God acting. God's like, oh, he's getting close. All right. So when the Lord saw Moses coming to closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. Yeah, holy ground. Number six, verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. So what are we told? We're told that you should wear no shoes and you're more holy. Next week, no shoe Sunday. Okay, come. But we see, look, right at the beginning, he's saying, hey, Moses, I'm, I'm the God of your forefather, Abraham, 
of Isaac and Jacob. What's he reminding? What is he speaking to? That covenant. That covenant is very important. That's what he's going to keep referring to. Hey, that thing we made with Abraham, your forefather, I am that God. And I want to rescue my people, the people that you left in Egypt, you know, your family. We want to, I want to rescue them from Egypt. And he says in verse 10, now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. And like, and like a great man of faith, he puffed up his, chance, his chest to answer the call. He continues, but Moses protested. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people out of Israel, out of Egypt? And folks, he complains for about an entire chapter. Read Exodus 3 and 4. He complains and complains and excuse after. He said, I don't want to do it. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. And so God, why should I do this? Well, the answer is very similar, uh, simple. He's a nobody. In fact, he's worse than a nobody. He's a criminal. But it's not about him. It's about what God's going to do through him. Verse 12, God says, but God answers, I will be with you. Just like I was with Abraham. I'm going to be with you. And this is your sign that I'm the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. He's like, you're going to come back here and something very important is going to happen at that mountain. That comes true. We'll get there. And after much protest, Abraham goes. And when Moses goes, he goes to Pharaoh. And what does he tell Pharaoh? Only some of you have seen that movie. Come on now, folks. What does he tell Pharaoh? I know. And Pharaoh says, no. Nope. Not happening. You know the story. All sorts of plagues happened to get his attention. And then one did get Pharaoh's attention. Pharaoh's told that the firstborn out of everybody's house will die if they don't let him go. And we can get so caught up in why. What was he told first? Let him go and it won't happen. But he chooses to ignore that. And all the Israelites, they had to take the blood of the lamb. You remember this? They had a slaughtered lamb. They had to paint it over their door. And that would be a sign that they are God's people. And when the plague of death would come, the death would not touch the house with the blood of the lamb over it. And they were given very clear instructions that for the rest of them being a people, they had to celebrate these event. What's it called? Passover, you know the story, yes. They had to celebrate Passover to commemorate God rescuing them from the bondage of slavery. Passover, the blood of the lamb, you're being rescued from slavery. God is doing something. God is moving. So even to this day, they still celebrate and remember the Passover time. And so they get out. That plague happens, gets everyone attention, and Moses takes them back to that mountain that God said they would come and worship him, and there we see the next covenant put into place. It starts like this, Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Now, if you obey me and keep my covenant, this is an if you, then I will type of covenant, folks. This is what Israel was under. We are not. This is their covenant. If you will, then I will. If you will be my special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. And this is the message you must give to the people of Israel. And this is where we see the Ten Commandments come into play with all the other laws, the sacrificial system, when they did sin, which I love because God was never under the assumption they would get it right the whole time. 
He knew sin was a thing, so he put the sacrificial system so they could be made right with him again. And they would be able to share in the blessings of God and be the people of God and carry out the purposes of God like he has asked from the very start. Partner with me, manage earth, be witnesses, carry out my good purposes and reflect my character into the world. Join him in being fully human. And so we see Deuteronomy 27 and 28. You can read it on your own. It has all sorts of curses, starts with the curses, and then blessings. If they follow, here's what will happen. If they disobey, here's what's going to happen. And the thing about this covenant made with Israel at this time, it does not replace the covenant made with Abraham. It just continues that covenant. It gets a little more detailed. But this covenant is promised of land, blessings, and prosperity if they obeyed. And this is what God is referring to when he's with Solomon. They put the temple in place. If you continue to be my people, the same thing I told you from the beginning will happen. I will bless you. I will make you prosperous because God's building a nation and his purposes are unfolding. Now, we see from their history, they don't get it right all the time. In fact, they're far from getting it right all the time. And so we have these cycles of, hey, we're going to get it right. And then what happens when they get it right? What happens when everything is going good in your life? You're like, I don't even need to go to church. Things are great. Stock market goes down. God, I will go on Wednesdays. I'm telling you, I will start Wednesday service. All right, same thing. When everything's going good, they forget about the Lord. So he brings some pain and discomfort to get their attention. God does that, by the way, if you didn't know. The pain and discomfort, they're like, oh, this is horrible. We're being led by other people. We're not living in prosperity. We're not living in blessings. We're not even on our homeland anymore. God kicked us out. He said we could only stay if we followed him. We're ignoring him, so he kicked us out. Hey, God, we'll be good again. So God's like, all right. He rescued them, brought them back. They had a time of devotion. They loved the Lord. Then what happens when everything's going good? Correct. They forgot again, got kicked out again, right? It's this massive cycle that happens over and over again. And during this time, they're led by prophets speaking on behalf of God because God is their king. But then the story takes an interesting turn. I do not fully understand why God does what he does next. I guess he, uh, excuse me, I know he understands, but I do not. So don't ask me questions about it. But God decides to accommodate their wishes. So we go from act Three, scene one, Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, to act three, scene two, Moses. Then we see the the Mosaic covenant. And now we're going to go to act three, scene three, and we're going to start seeing the earthly kings leading Israel. You see, the nation said, hey, we want a king like everybody else. God's like, hey, that's not a great idea. Earthly kings are like, they're going to steal from you. They're going to be selfish. They're going to be prideful. They're like, pfft. God, you don't know what you're talking about. We want an earthly king like every, we want a leader to lead us like everybody else around. He's like, but you're not supposed to be like everybody else. They're like, God, you still don't know what you're talking about. Listen, we need a king. And he's like, okay. I don't understand why he does that, by the way. He's like, okay, you can have one. He's like, but I get to pick him. So he picks Saul, the one who's the most handsome and tall guy, this, 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 this great looking king like everybody else has who doesn't get it right, fails miserably. Then God raises up, who's the next king? King? Right, he's a little shepherd boy from the middle of absolutely nowhere. God takes him, puts him as king. He ends up doing 
a pretty great job. He's the one who defeated Goliath. He's the one who leads them to be a prosperous nation. I mean, things are going great. A great warrior king. Though he has some problems. You can read those on your own. He sends pretty big. But throughout this history, this section of history, we see this covenant of them being the people of God, the Mosaic covenant coming into fruition, but now we're tracing through the line of kings. And the story is telling us over and over again that there's something wrong with these leaders, that something isn't right. They seem to be doing great. I mean, if anybody could do it, David could do it, and boy, does he not do it. So there's this story about human leaders and this need for somebody to come and get this thing right. It's in the background playing the whole time. The the nation's trouble. There needs to be a great leader. Our country has never experienced the crisis of leadership before, has it? Yeah, we wouldn't understand this at all. Somebody needs to get it right. But check this out. There's this promise made to David. This is the Davidic covenant, okay? This is something different. It doesn't replace anything. But God says, hey, I'm going to promise you I'm going to do this really cool thing through you, David, because you kind of get it right. 2 Samuel 7.16. He says, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time. All time, David. You're going to have a king. You're going to have leaders. Like all time, you're going to have this ruler all time. You're going to have this dynasty. Something great's going to happen. And your throne will be secure forever. I mean, a forever kingdom, that's a pretty big promise, isn't it? And it doesn't happen the way they thought it would happen until we understand the person and the works of Jesus Christ. So back up. Here's a general breakdown of this section. Here's what we see. The six acts. We see act one, creation. We got Genesis one and two. Act two, we see the fall, Genesis 3 through 11, and the effects of sin. Then act three, we see Israel, redemption initiated, and that's Genesis 12 through Malachi. I mean, that is a massive section of the Bible. And act three, we break it down into three sections. We see scene one, um, God God chooses Abraham or chose Abraham. We see the Abrahamic covenant. And then we see the prophetic leaders in scene two, the Mosaic covenant, because there's a lot more than just Moses here, by the way. And then scene three, we see the earthly kings, the Davidic covenant, and how kings just don't get it right in the fight over land and leadership. And through the rest of the Old Testament, which literally means old covenant, through the rest of the old covenant, we see their history play out and the fulfillment or seemingly the fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham, the the initiation of the blessings and the curses through the law, the Mosaic covenant, and then this leadership of kings. So through Act 3, Act 3, the constant call when this initial redemption is initiated, the call is for the people of God to be the people of God. The same call you see in Act 1, at creation, and the same problems affecting Act 3 that affected Act 2, the fall, sin, people wanting to do their own things. And the interesting thing about the Old Testament, if you've read it or you've read through it, is the story actually never ends. It never ends, it just stops. It's just this weird thing. It like it goes and it goes and it's story and it's story, then it just drops out. Like what happened? And so for Jewish people today, they're still waiting for it to be fulfilled. They're still waiting for someone to get it right. But for us, for Christians, we believe, well, that story continued just not like they expected. Now, while there's so much we can get into, I want us to just look at these three covenants and that one event that explained their story, that helps us really understand Israel and what God did through them and how they are signposts 
pointing to Jesus Christ and how Jesus then points back to all these things saying, hey, it's really about me. This is showing me. This is how this whole thing is working out, ultimately fulfilling God's redemptive story. So remember that event Passover we looked at? Well, Passover and the Lord's Supper. You see communion that we celebrate? That was started because Jesus took and redefines Passover around himself. Jesus was sharing in that very important meal that God said that they had to celebrate every single year that reminded them from coming to Egypt. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and he takes that meal and reinterprets it around himself. Who can change something that got into place, put in place? Only God. Or you think the guy's crazy and you need to walk away from absolutely everything else he says. Because Jesus took the very special way. He says, hey, that, 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 that cup you drink now, it's my blood. Doesn't remind you about the Exodus anymore, not remind you what I'm about to do. That bread that you eat every time, it's no longer about the man you got in the wilderness. Now it's about my body that was broken. So the most important meal for a Jew and for Jesus being a Jew is the Passover celebration that he changes and says, now it's about me. The best illustration I've heard of this is for you. I don't know. Anybody celebrate Christmas in here? Yeah, best illustration I heard is that's equivalent of us going, Christmas is now about me and my birthday. How upset would you get on that? You'd be like, that's blasphemous. You can't take Jesus' birthday. He wasn't really born then. But you can't take Jesus' birthday and make it about you. That's very similar to what Jesus did here at Passover. Now we celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, remembering him. But instead of it being the exodus out of Egypt, now it's the exodus out of sin and how the Lamb of God took the sin away through his blood so we could be free from the bondage of sin. And then we see the Abrahamic covenant. We see that unfolding for the rest of Scripture to include Jesus Christ. In fact, the New Testament writers, Paul, points back to it and says, look, this is Jesus Look what Paul says in Galatians 6. I'm at Galatians 6. Galatians 3, 6. He says, in the same way, Abraham believed God and counted to him as righteousness because of his faith. The real, children, the real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. He's like, it's always been about faith. Let's continue. He says, what's more? The scriptures look forward to this time when God would make Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed this all good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share in the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Paul saying, look, Genesis 12, one through three, the promises made to Abraham, Jesus did that because that's what they were waiting for. He's like, no, no, it's actually about Jesus. Like this whole thing's been about Jesus the whole time. The whole world is blessed because of Jesus. So then as the people of God, we continue to tell people about Jesus as Israel was called to, as Abraham was to go into the worlds. And then we see the Mosaic covenant, right? They had to keep these laws perfectly. How many of you have been perfect in your life? Just one of us, I guess. Right, none of us, right? And so we see that Jesus, with the resounding message is over and over, Jesus completely fulfills that covenant, Jesus is the only one who actually gets it right. He walks faithfully before the Father without any sin. Look what Jesus says, Matthew 5, 17. He says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I come to accomplish a purpose. He says, I've come to fulfill them. I came to, 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 to take care of all this. 
In fact, we learn that the law was given to guard Israel as the people of God to protect them until Christ came. Look what Paul says. Paul says, let me put this another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we are no longer need the law as our guardian. This is why Christians do not follow the Mosaic law. We're not under the law. We're not under that covenant. He was a Jewish scholar. This guy Paul was. He made sense of all that for us. Thank the Lord. He says, we're not under that anymore. Christ took care of all that. Peter got this, right? And he's like, look, those promises that were made to Israel before, like that's been fulfilled in Jesus. Now everybody in Jesus are the people of God. Like Israel's been expanded to include everybody else because of Jesus Christ. So now anybody's a person of God who believes in Jesus Christ. Look what Peter says, 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but you are not like that for you are chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own special, excuse God's very own possession. As a result, you could show others the goodness of God for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And I hope that sounds familiar if you've been paying attention because that's very similar to what God said on the mountain. You will be a people of mine. You'll be a royal priesthood, a, spo- a, a, a chosen nation. Peter's reusing this language and saying, hey, what was true of Israel then? Now because of Jesus Christ, now that's true of all of us. That in Christ, all of this has been fulfilled. Like he's a really big deal. So God has now established his people through the entire world. And now it's not just, and, and we can deal with this another time. I'll let Alan preach on this later. It's not Israel and then Christians, folks. Through Israel, the Messiah came and expanded it to all people under the Messiah. Those are now God's people. Under Jesus Christ, that's what the New Testament's screaming at us over and over and over again. That in Jesus, in Jesus, through Jesus. And then we have the Davidic covenant. Jesus comes from the line and the family of David. He's the anointed leader who finally gets it right. This is such a big deal that we saw in Genesis. It says, in the beginning, God, right? So we all are very careful how we open up a story. Matthew says, look, I'm going to open it up this way. And we're like, genealogies, great day. Who wants to read that, right? How many of you gloss over the genealogies other than me? The rest of you just haven't read it then because there's no way you can pronounce all that and still be sane by the time you get done with it, okay? Look what, look what Matthew says. He says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of, yeah, he's like, hey, all that stuff, all those covenants, all that stuff that's been pointing to this guy, Jesus, fulfilled all of it. And for a Jewish person, this would have been an attention grabber. They'd have leaned in and been like, do what? And we're like, I don't get it. I know, but this is what it's so important about Act 3. They're going, oh my goodness, he fulfilled all of it. This is what's been told to us. Like, this is a big deal that Jesus, the Messiah, the King, has come and taken charge once again. We had God ruling. We said, God, okay, y'all want your own king. You have your own king. That happened for a while. It didn't work. Now, Jesus is God coming back, taking ownership, taking and being the ruler, saying, now I'm in charge. And God's kingdom has come, or God's kingdom is coming. He says both. We get to work through what all that means. But we no longer have to worry about who's in charge. We no longer have to worry about, is there going to be a leader who finally gets it right? The answer is no. Jesus already has, and nobody else can do what he has done. 
And so when we understand Act 3, we understand that the gospel, the story of Jesus, isn't just about sin and then Jesus shows up. The gospel is a resolution and a fulfillment to the story of Israel and all of God's promises. They're yes in Jesus Christ. He's taken care of all that. So we'll dive more into that next week in Act um, Act 4, but Act 3 is the beginning of redemption that's ultimately fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And when we look at this and we understand Jesus, it just draws us to understanding that God is the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. He is faithful. He comes through every time. He's been doing it for thousands of years, folks. And we see Jesus and we get caught up in how amazing he is. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are the promise-keeping God. We have seen you come through in our lives over and over again. And Lord, we ask you to continually remind us how you are the faithful promise-keeping God. God, you are the one who will strengthen us in our time of need. You will give us rest when we are worn out. You will take care of all of our needs. You will answer our prayers. And we know that in you, all things will happen for the good of those who love you. And we know you will always be with us. You will protect us and you will forgive us from all of our sins. Lord, we can count on these promises from you. So Father, we are so thankful that we can trust you with our everything through Jesus Christ. Father, help us just make much of Jesus, the King of King and Lord of Lord. The one who gave us life so we could be set free from our sin. And Father, we are so thankful that you love us. We are so thankful that we can be your people through Jesus Christ and that you call us your children. Father, we are so thankful for your great love. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Will you stand?